You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, I'm Robert Wright. I run the Non-Zero Foundation, which produces all the shows on Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV. We host a variety of voices, some of them pretty unorthodox, and we encourage dialogue that is sharp but civil. We think fostering constructive conversation is especially important now that America and the world are looking kind of fragile. If you agree that our mission is important, I hope you'll consider helping us shoulder the cost. You can do that by becoming one of our cherished patrons at patreon.com slash nonzero foundation. That's N-O-N-Z-E-R-O-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. Thanks. We need your help, and we deeply appreciate it. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. Uh, I'm culturally determined. I'm your host, Ari Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Christopher Grobe. Uh, Christopher, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm Chris Grobe. You can call me Chris. I'm a professor of English at Amherst College uh, and a scholar of the performing arts and uh, performance studies, which tries to put the performing arts in conversation with um, everyday performances out in the world. Uh, so thank you for coming on. Uh, uh, the main thing we're going to talk about today is an a academic article that you recently published. Um, and the title is The Artist is President. Uh, performance art, which is italicized in your title, performance art and other keywords in the age of Donald Trump. Um, and what was the journal in which this, this was published? Uh, critical Inquiry. Uh, so you will, we'll link to it. I'm not sure if most people will be able to access the full version, but you sent me, <laughs> you sent me the full version and, um, and I found it, uh, very readable for an, an, someone who doesn't read academic, uh, articles very often um <laughs> and you. it's it's really right up my alley so uh but but maybe uh, the, the first thing is um what can we and maybe this is a bit of a can of worms but can we define performance art and performance studies uh because i think i don't even know if i've ever heard of performance studies before um yeah um so performance studies as a field um one origin story for it is that um, theater studies people got together with anthropologists and sociologists and realized that they had a lot of common ground. That is to say that theater people were interested in thinking about theater as more than just sort of detached spectacle, but as connected to things like ritual and, um, you know, the performance of everyday life. And um, anthropologists and sociologists, some of them were beginning to think in theatrical terms uh, and be beginning to draw vocabulary and idea from the arts to describe the rituals and, and practices of everyday life that they were studying. So that's the, that's the field of performance studies is the, the kind of, um, new insights that came out of those kinds of collaborations and cross-disciplinary thinking. So, um, you know, one one of the one of the early figures in the field talks about this as the broad spectrum of performance, where on the one hand of this on the one side of the spectrum, you have things that everybody everybody would agree is performance. 
and you know something like a, a ballet or a theatrical you know performance of a, a play or something like that and then on the other hand you have things like the performance of gender identity or um you know political spectacle things that um you know not everybody would say is performance but a lot of people would be comfortable analyzing as performance um and so you know, for me, um, the, this field gets interesting as soon as you start to think about feedback loops between the two ends of the spectrum. When you start to think about how, you know, say the way that people are performing gender on stage or in a film might actually be in conversation with and changing the way that gender is performed in everyday life. Yeah. And in the case of this article you read, um, I'm really thinking about how you know, performance art, which we would put like way on one end of the spectrum and political campaigning, which we would put on far on the other end, um, you know, how, what the actual connections between them are and, um, the anxiety that arises when people begin to see connections between the two of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is there a commonly accepted definition of performance art that separates it from, theatrical performance or some other kind of art that might involve people, you know, people doing things. So yeah, there are a couple ways to think about it. One is uh, performance art as opposed to the other kind of art that happens in museums or galleries. So instead of uh, a stable object, like a sculpture or a painting, you have, you know, bodies moving in real time. And so one way of thinking about performance art was when, um, you know, live performance and experience come into these spaces that aren't used to handling them. And in that art historical perspective, what's important about it is that there's no, there's no art object, right? It's an, it's an ephemeral experience. So it's part of this kind of like, uh, like anti-materialist sort of, um, radical idea in the art world that you would not be producing a commodity, but instead you're producing an experience. Another way to think of it is that it's like a, it's an alternative to theater in the sense that, um, whereas theater is caricatured in a lot of these conversations as just invested in the kinds of fictions and illusions that happen behind the fourth wall of a proscenium stage, um, performance art is coming out into the world and into galleries and onto the streets and is is part of the world. So defined against art, it's experiential, ephemeral, etc. Defined against theater, it's um, it's blurring that line between uh, spectacle and life. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so I'm going to read uh, the the line that jumped out to me the most from your essay, uh, which is uh, the two most prominent performance artists. In America today are Marina Abramowitz, forgive me if I'm saying that wrong, you can pronounce it correctly, Abramovich, yeah, Abra yeah. Abramovich and, yeah. and Donald Trump. Um, and, okay, so how did you come to think, how did you bring this pair, this pair together? And maybe, maybe let's, probably most people, even if they don't, well, I guess he has an unusual name, but um, if, if they don't remember Abr Abramovich, maybe they've seen her, like, you know, a recording of her doing something or heard about some of the different yeah. things she's done. I guess most, maybe most famously in the past decade was she did something called the, or it was called the artist is present, right? 
Yeah, the artist is president. This is the riff on the title of your uh, essay, The Artist is President. Um, And she was, like, inviting gallery goers to, like, sit and uh, stare at her as she stared back. Um, Mm -hmm. And correct me if if I'm getting any of these details wrong, but who who is this person and how did you connect her to our president, Donald Trump? No, that that's absolutely right. So um, that is what she's best known for. And even people who don't think they know the artist is president probably saw this video that went viral through one of those like feel good listicle websites um, where while she was doing this um, exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art, inviting p- members of the public to like sit down with her. Um, her former partner in art and life, uh, Ule, who's another artist, like sat down with her and, uh, you know, they had this like really intense exchange and there's the, when it went viral anyway. Uh, yeah, she's also, um, you know, like referred to pretty broadly as, um, a kind of like major, uh, sort of founding figure in the grandmother of performance art or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the more successful she's become in the art world, um, the more that she um, has started to cross over into celebrity world. So an- another thing that people may have seen is a, a video that she made along with Jay-Z, um, Anyway, you can Google that. <laughs> uh, I, I, okay, I'm not aware of that one. Is it? Uh, but we'll uh, we can find the, we'll track the link down and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so she second right, part to your question. Yeah. So okay. So yeah, and I and uh, the other stuff I remember from her is like something where there's like a doorway and there's two mm-hmm. two people you know who are working with her who are completely naked um, yeah. who are standing you know, um, I don't know if it's like perpendicular to the doorway or something so that you have to like walk through, walk very closely through this opening mm-hmm. created by the two, two naked people, um, yeah. to go through, I guess that's one of her more famous ones. And then they, there was like a, yeah. a, um, I don't know what you call it. Like they recreated a lot of her famous works all at yeah. once at, at MoMA sometime, maybe also when she was doing the yeah. present exhibit is that, and, right? and that was that was a really important moment in the history of performance art because it was like a major retrospective of performance art and remember i told you that like you know performance artists pride themselves on leaving no trace behind creating no commodity um things happen once and can never happen again etc and uh and so there was actually a lot of controversy in the art world about like what it meant to Reperform and like bring back to life all of these performance art pieces. But I should also say, just for context, that um, one of the things that Abramovich is best known for are either like endurance art projects, where, as in the artist is president, she's doing something for hours or days or months. So, for instance, you know, just living living in a custom built space in a gallery for days at a time or uh, something like that. And, uh, and, and with this sort of really um, like masochistic ordeal art where, um, you know, she's doing things like um, cutting herself or um, just putting herself in danger. Um, Probably one of her most famous pieces called rhythm zero, where she just is in a gallery with a table uh, full of objects ranging from, you know, feathers and roses to a loaded gun. 
and just inviting the public to do whatever they want to with those objects and with her. Um, and so that kind of like vulnerability and danger and endurance is like her main thing. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So you mentioned, you know, yeah. So you mentioned the loaded gun in the essay a, a couple times, I think, or, or artists who've worked with a, a loaded gun. Um, yes. Yeah. And it, it, so that is actually a loaded gun. It's not a prop or something like, well, we, it's always tough to know, but yeah, no one has ever picked it nobody up and shot it as far as we know. It. As far as I know, nobody ever fired it. But the, but there have been so you also mentioned there's a guy who famously like had filmed himself getting shot. Um, this like in the seventies. Just got himself shot in a gal. Yeah, Chris Burton, who's another one of these artists in the same vein of like ordeal and endurance art. Um, yeah, uh, famously, a piece called Shoot. Um, had himself shot. <laughs> um, and this is, I guess, this is a side note that I just thought of. But is how does the, how do uh, scholars of the field view um, David Blaine, the the magician who does similar kind of endurance stunts? Yeah, around which like maybe more extreme. I mean, he does stuff like living in an ice coffin yeah. for for ten days or, or something something like that. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I don't actually know. There, there might, in fact, be scholarship that like brings people like Abramovich together with people like David Blaine. But what I would say, I, I'm, if, if so, I'm not aware of it. But what I would say is that um, those kind of connections would would be precisely the kind of thing that interest performance studies scholars. Because, you know, there's performance art as this like elite practice that happens in, you know, um, sort of marginal or... Uh, or closed off spaces. Uh, and then there's popular performance. And, you know, we are precisely interested in the connections and comparisons between them. So I would not be uncomfortable at all calling David Blaine a performance artist yeah. who, like, needs to be analyzed alongside somebody like Abramovich. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I, I don't know, uh, I'm sure that there's been academic study of magicians, um, but yes. where they fit exactly, you could put them in. There's the theatrical aspect. It's like street magic that is maybe more like what a performance artist would, or, yeah. or like a gorilla kind of uh, artist would be doing. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. But let's. Um, okay, so so the scholars out there can can take that as their cue to start uh, writing away. But let's let's get back to okay. So you're so Abramovich, yes, most famous performance artist. Um, in the country, at least, probably if any American knows just one person, they it's it's her, and yeah. then uh, Donald Trump. Um, so so how did you join them? How did you think that they should be joined together? Well, so, um, you know, the 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 mo of this essay is that I I'm just I'm fascinated with the way in which people use theatrical language and the language of performance and performance art to describe politics. And so um, in a half tongue in cheek, but half totally serious way, um, the fact that people so obsessively during the 2015 primary and 2016 election of Donald Trump referred to him as a performance artist I wanted to take that seriously and think like, what are they actually saying about him? So, you know, I, uh, I sort of did a, a, a wide survey and a deep analysis of, you know, who was calling Donald Trump a performance artist and why, and not to get too far ahead, but, you know, 
I think um, in in one sense, the kind of consensus that arose around him that, um, you know, in in the 2016 election that we ought to be taking him seriously, but not literally. Like, mm-hmm. that's one thing that people meant when they called him a performance artist. And there is a strain of performance art that is really meant to be taken seriously, but not literally, right? So there are a lot of performance artists who are doing something that is meant mainly to make a point, get an idea across, get certain reactions or set off certain social processes around them. And um, I think it would be appropriate to say that Donald Trump during his campaign was in, was engaged in a lot of that same kind of stuff. Okay, so you've, you found that people in both like like pundit type people and yeah. just everyday people on Twitter especially mm-hmm. during 2016 were often talking about Trump as a performance artist and right. so you catalog right. some of these and um it was such a common a very common trope and the and so sometimes people would say um you know I I I have a fantasy that Trump is going to like you know pull his mask off and it's really Tilda Swinton or, yeah. or you you know there was a cartoon in which um, yeah. uh, uh, Trump was unzipped and it was Andy Kaufman, uh, the right. late possibly you know th- th- there's always this idea that he faked his death but pretty sure he's dead. Yeah. Uh, actually, this has all <laughs> been an extended Andy Kaufman prank and right. you know that he was wearing a Trump skin suit and um, and I would say that so this is the other side of things. Um, so there there was a way in which. Donald Trump seemed to be relating to the world the way that a performance artist would. But there was also a sense in which um, people on the left were consoling themselves with the idea that this was just performance art as a way of not having to grapple with the reality of what was going on. Um, And I would say, like, there is, in fact, a particular history of people who call themselves performing artists running gag campaigns uh so you know they're they're um just to give one example uh out of my hometown chicago um joan jet black was a drag queen who ran on the queer nation party ticket multiple presidential cycles running um this was i think the first time is in 1992 so not long after reagan our, our uh, first actor president and, um, you know, ran on the, on the slogan, if a bad actor can be president, why not a good drag queen? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. And then there's, there's this guy, Vermin Supreme. I don't know if he runs for president or if he just runs for like whatever office he can. He like wears a boot on his head. Um, yeah. And there's Lord Buckethead who has been running for parliamentary seats in England for as long as I've been paying attention. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. And then there, I mean, it going, I mean, I don't know that this was in, there was famously the, the, um, the yippies ran a pig. I think his name was Pegasus um, yes. president in 68 or 72. Um, and yeah, so those, so that's kind of like, I mean, I like maybe before I read your piece, I would have called that like a stunt or something. Um, yeah. not, not think of it as performance art, but I could, I can see more of the connections now. Okay. So, so why did, what, okay. So, uh, Probably very few people actually thought that Trump was going to pull a mask off and actually it's someone else. Like, you know, maybe, you know, we live in a time in which people believe there are lizard people, you know, pretending <laughs> to be humans controlling 
the world government. Um, so maybe there's some people out there who believe that, but it was, so it was a consoling <laughs> thought um, that actually like this whole thing was a joke. Um, right. This was like a stunt, a prank, um, some sort of wacky thing. So why did, okay. Why did people think that? Well, um, Trump was saying a lot of crazy things that no national, no person on the national stage had ever said before. Yeah. Um, Trump acts strangely um, in a way that no, polit- you know, just his mannerisms in uh, the way that in a way that no national political figure has ever acted before. Um, he looks strange in a way that no national political figure ever looked before. He where he takes on bronze makeup and he has yeah. this very strange hair that has been his you know iconic um, uh, do you know for like thirty or forty years. And he also, yeah. um, I mean, as as like Trump aged he became more he like just became the caricature of himself so like i so if you look at him for in like the 80s i assume he wore suits that were more different colors and ties that were more different colors and now he yes. almost always wears a dark blue suit and a, a long red tie and so yeah. it's like he he became the cartoon he, he like moved closer towards the cartoon version of himself mm-hmm. um which maybe most people do <laughs> as they as they age but <laughs> trump already like you know, created this character uh, of Trump and like became it even more. And I did a episode um, back in like January, February with uh, James Ponowazek, who's the uh, television critic at the times. And he wrote this book, uh, audience of one. That's a tra- oh, yeah. uh, about um, uh, is a dual biography of Trump and television. And, and he <laughs> notes that Trump in a way that perhaps no other person we can think of did turned himself in the eighties and nineties into a symbol, like a pure symbol for like money. And if you, yeah. if you wanted like to symbolize money in like a rap song or a cartoon or something, you use Trump either, right. either Trump himself or the, the word or the image of Trump. And mm-hmm. you know, the, we couldn't really think, I asked him if he could think of anyone else who successfully did this. And he said, maybe Kim Kardashian with sex, but even that, but that's not even like at the level that Trump successfully turned himself into a symbol. Yeah. So he's a yeah. very strange person in like dozens of ways. Um, yeah. And so I can see why people would think this is all some sort of joke. And, and back in 2016, I thought, and I still kind of think that he just ran for office so that he could get attention and sell hats and, and somehow through a strange series of events managed to become president, even though he didn't really want it. Um, okay. So what, any thoughts or reactions to, to that long monologue? Yeah. Um, no, I think you're absolutely right that as a matter of business strategy, he transformed himself into a symbol. Um, I would say, and I don't know if this came up in your conversation about Audience of One, but um, you know, The Apprentice played a really big role sure. in converting that symbolism of sort of luxury wealth, deal-making, et cetera, into something that looked more like executive power. And um, I'm not going to remember the precise details, but I, I know that there's been research in um, in the television studies world uh, highlighting the fact that in other places, in other countries and regions where the apprentice format has gone on the air, mm-hmm. Um, similar figures have used it in this way as a way to convert like an entertainment or business personality into ambitions for government. 
And I think you can just see this in the fact that, like, who took over when Donald Trump left The Apprentice? Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? So, like, it it seems to be a format that, in ways that I haven't really grappled with yet, is, like, designed to to make this conversion of, like, cultural symbol into political candidate. Yeah, it's it's strange. And, you know, a lot has been written about The Apprentice. I, I think since then, there was a piece in The New Yorker that, interviewed a lot of people who worked in The Apprentice and noted how they created this, you know, talked about how they created this reality. And when the producers approached Trump about making the show, mm-hmm. and, you know, they went into his office, everything was kind of shoddy and the furniture was like 30 years old and nicked up and stuff. And so they had to like create this image and a lot, they also had to do a lot of stuff with editing um, to make Trump appear more like coherent and decisive than he actually was. So it was a lot of um, smoke and mirrors bullshit in order to create this image also, yeah. which, which is which is very strange, and I think um, in this that Panawazic agreed with me when I said, if not for the, if the Apprentice didn't exist, no President Trump. Like that, is, it's that, not the you know Trump Tower, yeah, or Mar-a-Lago, or appearing on Fresh Prince of Bel Air as you know in a cameo appearance. It's the Apprentice right, he, that, that did it. He was not terribly relevant, and and also just like this is going really far afield. But as a businessman. <laughs> Um, he had sort of lost his way until, you know, he discovered the possibility of essentially taking almost no financial risk on products, attaching his cultural symbol to them and taking licensing fees. Yeah. A strategy that was in part enabled by his renewed celebrity, uh, with the, with the apprentice. Yeah. A lot, all, the Trump water and Trump stakes and stuff and Trump yeah. university. It was, it was, yeah, it was more, I mean, and he's real Trump buildings right yeah his genius uh, is for had, branding had his really. name on them but seldom much of his money behind them right and in fact there's a um <laughs> there's a so I, I live in jersey city now there's a trump tower jersey city and mm. i've actually um it's where my cv the cvs that i use as a pharmacy is located so i've been in there uh more times than i would have thought and so when the black lives matter protests started there uh an image circulated that uh, workers um put uh, like black, large black trash bags over the, you know, so there's a big logo that says Trump Tower. They, they covered the part that said Trump with black trash bags. So it just, so it just said Tower um, <laughs> as a way to like, so, you know, <laughs> to confuse, I guess, people who weren't really paying attention and wanted to smash stuff, but nothing got smashed anyway in Jersey City. But also I learned that um, he, if he ever did have any sort of ownership stake in Trump Tower, Jersey City, he doesn't have it anymore. Um, but the, they kept the name because now the, the Kushner family is the uh, real estate company you know, corporation oh. is, is the, the controlling mm-hmm. power there. Um, and so that's why they didn't just take the name off as they did in some other places where, he, where he just stuck the name on like these buildings that they built on the, um, West side, um, that <laughs> removed, removed the Trump, the Trump branding. Um, okay. So, so, but branding is his real like genius power, I think more than, more than anything else. Um, and yeah, just the, uh, you know, it, it, he's been doing it since like, the art of the deal came out in 87 or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really what he's, what he's good at. Um, okay. But, well, okay. So, but there seems to be, I mean, the thing that's one of the other strange things about Trump is he, you know, sort of broke the fourth wall or something mm-hmm. in terms of the campaign. And you, you, you have this excerpt that you discuss of this one time, at a rally when Trump started talking about how he could 
like be presidential if he needed to be. And he started like acting like the president. And so he's like, you know, he kind of like stood up stiff and was like being serious and was like talking like this for a second. And everyone in the crowd at the rally in 2016 was like laughing and clapping. Um, yeah, and, and this was a re- this is actually a recurring bit during his rallies. Yeah, um, it was you know basically the elements that he singles out like you know stiff, unexpressive physicality, a reliance on teleprompters, so forty five degree turns left and right, and a certain kind of like you know sort of uh, low affect uh, sing song rhetoric, and I I actually think like. Watching the his speech at the RNC, which frankly I found deeply boring, but had made myself watch for uh, research purposes, <laughs> like I was trying to figure out what he was doing because, in fact, it seemed like a perfect reperformance of his satirical act of being presidential at rallies, right? His his like really stiff reliance on teleprompters. And that, um, again, like bizarre, repetitive sing-song rhetoric. Well, he, I think he's quite bad, actually, at delivering a prepared speech. Um, right. His, his, his skill is in improvisational speech, and, and that's why he loves right. the campaign rallies, because he just gets up there and riffs, you know, for right. an hour or so, and the crowd eats it up. But you can tell, I mean, some people, like, uh, some politicians are very good at reading a prepared script and making it seem... Like they're not reading a prepared script. Like Obama was good at that, but but Trump is yeah. very bad at it. And it's funny that his, you know, he kind of was like making fun of Obama in right. imit- imitating the being embodying <laughs> the president. Um, but he actually can't. Yeah, he's very bad at that yeah. part of it. And and one of the so getting back, I, I mentioned this in the previous episode, but on The Apprentice. So I I watched when I was a college student. I watched uh, The Apprentice the first season, especially with, uh-huh. with my friends because it was great. It was, it was like it was great entertainment. And I noticed that often in the, the boardroom scenes, you know, when he's doing the elimination, uh, they would have Trump talking and like the two people who are up for elimination talking and the two assistants talking. And then they would have these parts where they would cut to someone who wasn't Trump. And then it was, mm-hmm. but Trump was talking in a voiceover and it's very obvious that this was patched in at a different point uh, because mm-hmm. it was, you could, t- because of Trump's voice, uh, it, because he's a bad reader, essentially, um, mm-hmm. you could, you could tell that this was, added in as a voiceover later and it was it was you know it was said that um uh, in this new york article that often trump had a kind of non-logical reason for eliminating one contestant over the other and so they had to like through right. the editing create whatever trump so like maybe he just trump just didn't like how they were dressed and so they had to like find the moment where they screwed up or something and make a big deal out of it even right. though the other person did worse like you know it, on the on video in, in the challenge or whatever so uh, so yeah, so there's always been, I mean, from back then, from 2003 or four, you know, Trump yeah. like had this, you know, ability to like talk and talk and talk. Um, but also like that it didn't always make sense. And then like someone had to come in and like clean it up and get Trump to like, they wrote something out for him to read and he read it into mm-hmm. the microphone, but it, it sounded kind of not, it didn't quite sound real. And you know, some of me could detect the difference. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's. It's all strange. Um, so, but I, I think, you know, in in the article, what I'm trying to do when I read that being presidential bit is that um, is to really take seriously his critique of the standard way of performing, you know, serious establishment politician. 
Um, and, you know, a lot of performance art is essentially a kind of performed critique of like bad, stupid theatricality. Right. And, and in fact, that's what I saw him doing in, in those being presidential bits um, that, you know, he was pointing out the thing that is uh, so taken for granted that it becomes invisible, that there is a standard way of performing gravitas, um, political dignity, etc. And um, he was calling our attention to that and um, satirizing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, so what's interesting is like, you know, you can, um, you, you can, uh, you can obviously see the, see the appeal in like the the guy who is like making fun of the stupid politicians. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like every, every a lot of people enjoy that. Um, and then, like, what? But once that guy becomes himself, the like stupid right. politician or the the person he was targeting, or, or like what you know, the people who want him to do that. I mean, I think you know, there's this joke that. Um, <laughs> the comedian uh Megan Amram uh tweeted for year for years um uh every single day she would tweet the same exact line um today is the day Donald Trump finally became president and so there was like this <laughs> yes so there right. was this longing out there probably among some amount of the populace but also but especially among the pundit, pundit class that like yeah. Trump is going to drop the act and he's going to like get serious and right. and he's finally going to like do the things that a normal president would do and and that never happened um, which by the way is like exactly the same fantasy as you know he stands up there and on inauguration day and zips off the trump suit right it's like that's a great the, point the, the idea that under underneath it all like he was never this exactly so, yeah so ripping the mask off and it's like yeah. you, you know mike pence or something or, or you know obviously it can't be him but it was some responsible you know, John Thune, some like responsible GOP, like bland person is, is there overall, but like, that's not who he is. He's this very unusual, strange person. And, um, so he, and he's 73 or four years old. So he's not going to change how he is because, you know, th this, this way has worked for him, um, you know, for his entire adult life. So, yeah. so yeah, so that, so shockingly, you know, or not shockingly, that hasn't happened. Um, you mentioned a little bit, um, uh, professional wrestling in in the article and i yeah. this has been this i've actually discussed this before i mean trump has a long association with professional wrestling he's friends personal friends with um yeah. Vince McMahon um of wwe and uh, you know appeared in various um wrestling events and stuff and um and mm -hmm. and you know the this idea of like um you know maybe there maybe i think when i was a kid this was still a little bit of a thing like Oh, those dumb wrestling fans, they don't know it's fake. Um, I think, I think that's, oh, yeah, there's really no one even who thinks that anyone thinks it's fake, it's fake at this point. It's like, we're, right. like everyone knows that the whole, we're all in on the joke, um, right. with wrestling, but there's, there's something similar with Trump where it's, it gets, I mean, I guess it's somewhat related to the seriously versus literally thing, mm -hmm. but it's like, are the, are the fans who are cheering for Trump like, don't they know? Do they know it's fake? Like, or are they in on the joke? Do they actually believe what he's saying when he says one? When he says, you know, the sky is green one day, <laughs> the sky is blue yeah. the next day. Like they're right. they're along for the ride either way. Right. I don't, what what are your thoughts about that? 
Yeah. Um, so in my own thinking on this, I'm like drawing more on the scholarship around reality TV mm-hmm. where, um, you know, there's a similar line, uh, like the simplest thing you can say about reality TV and sound smart is reality TV isn't real. Right. Right. <laughs> but, um, there are some scholars who have, uh, raised the question of <laughs> whether anybody really does believe it's real in that way. And, um, the one that I, uh, one of the ones I quote, Mark Andreevich, um, you know, has a great line about sort of how, um, it's, it's our, our panic stricken way of creating a sense of reality that we can hold on to positing the idea that there's some group of dupes out there who thinks that the illusion is real. Right. And, and, and it stops us from grappling with the more difficult questions of, uh, you know, like wh- why do we, why do we need this sense of, uh, the kind of solid indisputable reality of, of, of underneath reality TV. Um, I mean, this for me goes to um, a discussion that I get from the sociologist, Jeffrey Alexander, uh, who talks about um, one of the standard modes of politics being fusion and diffusion. So he's talking about, um, you know, over the last several decades, how um, the public has become more and more aware, and it has become more and more the case that, the creation of a political brand and image and campaign is being parceled out to specialists and focus grouped and based on polls. And as, as it's parceled out to these various people who are not, it's not just that we know that they exist, like we know their names, right? They are mini celebrity, mini political celebrities in their own rights, mm-hmm. the, the speech writers, the focus group runners, etc. Um, that is a threat to the like, unity and coherence of the image of the politician who therefore has to fuse their own image. And then the other side of that is they have to defuse their enemy's image. (laughs) That is to say their opponent, they need to, you know, point out often with the language of theater and theatricality that, Oh, that's just, he's just giving a scripted speech. He's, uh, you know, he's just an actor. This is all theater, et cetera. Um, and that is a kind of standard way in which American politics has happened, uh, especially, I would say, since the Obama years. Um, and I get a little frustrated with that um, because, you know, as a performance studies scholar, again, I see the deep connections between theater and everyday behavior in the first place. And so this game of you know, total fusion and authenticity on one side and total debased theatricality on the other just seems silly to me. And I, and I think it's fueled in part by, I mean, well, A, by a millennia long, millennia long tradition of anti-theatricality in the West. Um, but specifically by uh, a kind of liberal political establishments, uh, attachment to the idea that, that they are not performing that they are in fact the only ones not performing their politics and their ideas. Um, and this, this is why it's so important that like Trump has had this apparently quite effective anti-theatrical critique of the Jeb Bushes and the Hillary Clintons of the world. That is to say, he's in, in one sense, he's just engaging in the, the old 
defusion game in the sense that he's pointing out the theatrical like and non inevitable style of our politics um but uh you know there are forces on um anyway so the liberal establishment is is really attached to the idea that um an idea a policy can stand on its own that if we're trying to attach emotion to it or if we're trying to you know um make it make a compelling performance out of a policy idea that that is like corrupt and awful. Right. But in fact, um, you know, e even the truth has to be performed. Um, that is to say, uh, a, a, an idea can be real without being compelling or, <laughs> uh, you know, a policy can be, can be right without being, um, without anyone having shown people, how it's livable or how it attaches to emotions and experiences that they value or that they have. Right. And so really like a through line of my article is, um, you know, like just a frustration with, uh, a, a liberal establishment, both liberal in the sense of the opposite of illiberal. Right. So, um, I would include Jeb Bush in this as well as Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm like a refusal to openly embrace the idea that, you know, it, it's, it's okay to reach for the tools of performance and theater in support of your ideas. And this is something that I see um, handled really well by, um, you know, people like the, the um, March for Our Lives, um, like, you know, sort of gun control activists that came yeah. out of Parkland, Florida. And this is, I end the... Yeah, let, let's hold on to that and, and yeah, come yeah, back to sure. that maybe towards the end. Um, but I, I do want to think, so what you were saying made me think of two things. One is the, um, there was an SNL skit in the 80s about mm -hmm. Reagan, um, in which, it's pretty famous, in which he is in the Oval Office and there's like, you know, like Girl Scouts are coming to visit him and, and all this stuff. And he's, and he's like acting like this doddering grandpa, friendly guy who's kind of half out to lunch uh, breeding the little kids and then the little kids leave and he, he like snaps to and he's immediately like totally in charge he's like pulls out a map he's like and here's where the country's gonna be and he, so he's you know, yeah. like they made it out that you know R you know Reagan was really like super in control and and uh behind the scenes um yeah. and it, but what so with Trump you know it's like the performance is the reality like there's no you know he's like this weird um like <laughs> people people are gonna slag me for this but like he's like this human without a soul i mean he, he like there's no interiority there's no the, like w what does he like behind the scenes he seems to be exactly the same he's like yeah. except maybe he's a little madder because he's like yelling and cursing at people but you know like he he you you know that he like would have these um cabinet meetings that were t uh, televised for like an hour which you know it was it was more like a reality tv show performance than right. um than an actual meeting and you know, like nothing was actually decided or, or done or anything. But, um, you know, that surface level is always is as deep as it goes. And there's this um, axiom that I think Josh Marshall right. of talking points memo coined, um, called uh, Trump's razor after Occam's razor, <laughs> which is with Trump, right, um, the right. stupidest explanation is the most likely. And it, it's just like, whatever <laughs> the, like the, you know, the, there's no master plan. There's no thing happening behind the scenes. He's not, 
the Reagan of that SNL skit uh, doing 14-dimensional chess. He's just, right. he goes on instinct. He thinks about what's what people on TV are going to say about him. And he thinks mm-hmm. about, you know, 24 or 48 hours ahead. And it's all chaos <laughs> constantly. And and that's it. So there's, you know, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing there. And so when thinking about how yeah. he is like, a, you know, as he's a reality TV performer instead of a movie performer like Ronald Reagan was uh, mm-hmm. in his earlier career. Uh, he just, um, yeah, the, 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 it's all like the performance is all there is. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing else yeah. happening. So that is reality. Does that make sense? Yeah. I would just point out that, um, you know, some people would argue that Reagan himself was a reality TV star in, in the sense that, um, one, you know, one of his gigs, uh, was, you know, as the TV presenter for GE's weekly, uh, um, uh, like movie of the week kind of thing, movie of the week kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, and as a part of the kind of advertisement pitchman mode that he was in for GE, um, you know, they like did up his whole house in the GE all electric way and like involved him and Nancy Reagan and their children in these like proto reality TV segments, hmm. you know, in, in before and after these TV, um, plays or movies. Uh, so yeah, just <laughs> point of fact, uh, you know, Reagan was involved in a lot of different parts of the um, entertainment business. And if you want to um, learn more about this, there's a great book um, by uh, Timothy Rayfield called uh, The Body, uh, The President Electric, which is all about Ronald Reagan, his background in film and TV, and the way that that directly translated into uh, his political life and his political persona. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, uh, so a question that your, uh, essay made me think about is, so, so, so Trump is, is a performer. I, I'm down, I'm down with that, seeing him as, as a performance artist, but yeah. is he a shitty performance artist? Um, and I, I was thinking about, um, the military parade and how, you know, yeah. he, I guess he, like, was in France for Bastille Day, saw this, like, giant military parade they have every year was very impressed by it and all the, you know, soldiers marching. And so it's like, he loves spectacle. And then he wanted to do an American version of it. And the, um, the generals at the Pentagon didn't want to do this. And so it like got super, you know, downsized and like, so they couldn't roll tanks through the streets of Washington. So there was, there were like a couple tanks like on wooden boards and stuff. And so it was, you know, you, unless you were in the Trump cult, you didn't think, yeah. wow, what a great, what a great Trump military parade. It just seems sad. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, I mean, the whole thing is like Potemkin uh, in various ways. Um, and so, you know, maybe like, I mean, it's, it's hard to do, like, he can't really get that much done. Um, but beyond just like doing his own performance stuff. But when he tries to, you know, go beyond that or, like I said, when he, you know, like is giving the speech, the speeches are supposed to be like sonorous and serious and blah, blah. Like you can just tell he's like falling asleep inside. Yeah. And, and so it is just kind of weird that he's, he's both this performer, but he's like, you know, he's lost a step or something. I mean, maybe it's just like 10 years ago, he would have been better at this shit than, than he is at age 74. Uh, yeah. What do you think? I mean, so, uh, a source of continuing annoyance for 
scholars of, of performance studies is that this really technical term that until quite recently was largely unknown to the public is now uh, used and we would say misused frequently, which is performative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in, in language philosophy and in performance theory, performative refers to um, the things that by being said or done become true, right? So they can't be said to be true or false. Um, they, they make the truth. Like swearing and an oath so, or something? Like an oath or like a wedding ceremony or uh, like the, you know, the right person in the right circumstances smashing a bottle of champagne against the, a ship and, and naming it, right? Like if all the proper protocols have been followed and if the law and custom is behind that act, then yeah, now that ship has a name. Mm-hmm. That's performative. And, um, and now performative is used just to mean, you know, theatrical or bullshit, right? Um, right, like performative but, but outrage a, or something. There's a key distinction, and it's one that I think, um, you know, for, for all his uh, ineptitude at performing the presidential speech, um, you know, there's a reason Trump broke the law during the convention to make these official acts happen, Right. Like people being given citizenship is a performative act, mm-hmm. right? People being pardoned is performative in the sense that when he says it and the legal apparatus is behind him, it happens. Mm-hmm. And so I think he understands that um, if you connect the kind of bad theatricality of campaigns to the like transformative power of performative ritual, uh, you know, that, that puts a certain shine on even the stupidest performance. Um, that is to say that like he understands the connection between spectacle and performative like instantiations of power. Mm-hmm. Um, you're bringing to mind the, uh, the joke from the office when, when Michael Scott yells, I declare bankruptcy um, in, order, <laughs> in order to try to get out of some, some problem. Right. Um, right. and that one didn't work. Um, so, so, okay. So one of the, I, I, we kind of like alighted a, a point of the essay, which is that like politically performance art would always, was always seen as like something coming from the left. And then like Trump showed that it can also come from the right. And, but then towards the end, you talk about the Parkland students as maybe, you know, showing like a way forward or something, um, yeah. that the left can like reclaim this sort of performance, um, from, Trump who has like hijacked it or, or done a better version of it or something. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. And especially this, um, uh, the, the student, well, you, you note, which I had, I guess I, I, I knew it, but I forgotten that the kid, the kids from Parkland who like launched themselves onto the national stage in, uh, for to support gun control were the, the theater students or like the Literally. drama club or something. They were the drama club. Yeah. Which is, which is a very interesting thing to think about, especially considering how effective they were as yeah. at at doing that. And we like, you know, there's we know their names now, which is, which is strange um, because yeah. that that like didn't happen in Columbine or um, mm-hmm. uh, other similar school massacres. Um, yeah. So can you talk yeah. about how t- talk about this this uh, last part of the essay? Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, throughout the essay, I feel, I feel like I kind of work myself up into a bit of despair about, um, you know, the kind of mainstream political establishment and their kind of fear of theatricality. And um, in the last section, I'm trying to like tamp down that despair by <laughs> looking to the next generation and thinking maybe the kids are all right. <laughs> um, in the sense that like, you know, here here's the literal drama club of Parkland. And, um, and they have found ways to get their ideas across that do not avoid, um, the obvious spectacular and theatrical elements of what they're doing. So the particular performance that I, I spent a lot of time looking at is, um, Emma Gonzalez's speech at the March for Our Lives rally in DC. And, um, you know, Basically, she has a bit of scripted speech uh, where she's sort of memorializing each of the fellow students who died uh, that day. And she just kind of cuts off mid-sentence and freezes for several minutes of silence. Um, and the audience doesn't know what to do. And the TV like news directors don't know what to do. And, uh, and it is a pretty riveting moment, um, just in and of itself. Uh, but then after several minutes of this have passed, um, she ends her speech and you realize that in fact, it has been planned this way all along that now I'm forgetting what the exact time is, but the, the same time amount of time has passed as passed between when this guy started shooting and stopped shooting. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's the sort of climactic moment of her speech. And what I think is great about that is, you know, um, certain kinds of politicians and citizens would think that that's showy or theatrical, but I found it really effective. Um, you know, that she, she was willing to look like she had failed, right? Like, like she had just lost her way up there. Like she, uh, didn't know what to say next. Like she had lost the nerve or the emotional will to go forward. She was willing to do that to make a point and to make it really powerfully that like this, this is what, this is what several minutes of crisis feel like. And she, and she, you know, and I, I, I just thought it was, it was a really powerfully conceived performance. I should point out that Emma Gonzalez is actually the only member of that crew that was not a literal member of the drama club. Although she gave a quote to, I think the New Yorker saying, uh, yeah, I'm not a theater kid, but I am dramatic. Right. And so, and so, you know, I, I, I do think there's, um, I do think that, um, it's quite possible that people of her generation are more comfortable with being dramatic than uh, their sort of boomer elders. <laughs> um, and I think that might be in part a positive effect of growing up in the world of social media where the lines are always kind of blurred between, blurred between like conscious self-presentation and like, you know, unfiltered behavior. Mm -hmm. um, that is to say that, that um, they have an intuitive understanding of 
like, you know, all the good ways in which you can shape yourself and style yourself in order to make a point. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a pretty remarkable, like, theatrical or performative coup for this, you know, young woman who's 17 or 18 years old, who was able to do this, because I mean, a part of so the, the effectiveness is both the like the moment of silence, okay, so the, the silence, the awkwardness, and the confusion, and then like the, res- the the resolution with like a, a twist. It's like an M Night Shyamalan kind of twist yeah. because I'm sure yeah. no one who had who didn't know what she was going to do was expecting her to say, "That's how long the shooting took." Yeah. Um, yeah, and so that's a hell of a that's like a hell of a emotional twist that that she pulled off. Um, so yeah, so I don't. So I think that <laughs> whether you know whether it worked or not obviously no major gun control has, has passed since then but there's been there's all these uh, obstacles you know, to get anyway but given maybe some minds are changed i don't know yeah right like given given all the crises and and the paltry progress on gun control over the over the last decades uh, i think it's an impossible standard to hold a 17 year old to that right. <laughs> that she get gun control passed i i think that they've done more to make this a, a key issue for for the left and a, and a sort of non-negotiable issue, even for portions of the kind of moderate middle um, than than ever before, whether our dysfunctional politics can turn that public consensus into law is another question. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the associated with that, I guess, is this would be a side note, but like, you know, the. Uh, victimhood is uh is something that our culture prizes very highly and listening to victims and remembering victims i mean we're recording this on 9-11 you like uh yeah, you know two right. miles from where i'm sitting right now um they read out you know the names of the three thousand victims of the, you know the attacks at the world trade center um but everybody recording this in the middle of a pandemic right <laughs> Two hundred thousand. Right. yeah so those names you know there's could there ever be a memorial that will list every so like a memorial big enough, so it have to, the current size has to be four times the size of the uh, mm. of the Vietnam Memorial. Um, but but also, you know, so another thing that Trump like senses is that um, he hijacks his, our sympathy for victims uh, because he's always the victim. He was all, I, I joke I've joked that his um, you know his epitaph on his tomb is going to say. Uh, I, I was treated very unfairly. Um, you know, he, he's always he's always talking about how people are unfair to him. People didn't treat him well. Uh, you know, he hired someone, but then it turned out they were a cheat or a liar or whatever. He's the eternal yeah. victim. Nothing is ever his fault. And right. you know, the the, the victimhood narrative uh, goes down to his you know supporters who, I mean, maybe some of them have been victimized by globalization or like uh, immigrant labor undercutting their wages or something like that. But but he like speaks to their victimization and and resentment and that's you know another like genius move of his (laughs) in addition to the other the handful of others Uh, that i don't know if it's genius or um but you know i i think you know part of my disciplinary argument in this essay is that without ever um like if if you asked any performance scholar is performance inherently a radical left tool they probably wouldn't be silly enough to say yes, right? But a lot of our scholarship seems to to rest on that idea. Um, 
that that well that there are two possibilities either it's a tool of far right fascism or it's a liberating possibility of the radical left right um and uh you know i think i say at one point in the essay that you know it's it's depressing to see how tactics developed by radical left activists like how easily they can succeed when they are taken up by you know straight white right wing men who feel themselves to be marginalized mm-hmm. um and you know particularly i'm i was thinking about this this book that was published in 2005 by um Ellen Bogad called uh electoral guerrilla theater which is a whole book about those kind of like gag campaigns um that we were talking about earlier that that performance artists engage in and it's a really hard book to read today because it is so infused with this assumption that like you know a kind of performance art critique of the electoral system it has naturally radical left effects mm-hmm. right so there, i'm going to just read you a quick passage from that book um do these satirists pollute and abuse the electoral discourse and system wasting public resources and media time with their outrageous performances or is this offensiveness necessary for galvanizing marginalized communities the rhetorical question from the book mm-hmm. and it's depressing how good an exp- how good a description that is of like Donald Trump's 2016 electoral strategy mm-hmm. yeah and it really it really gives the lie to a lot of what's been going on in my field for decades mm-hmm. um let's let's briefly talk about a, a related but different topic, which is something that you wrote about uh, in the Washington Post um, mm-hmm. last month. Uh, so you you uh, wrote a piece about the Democratic Convention. Uh, the headline is "The Democratic Convention was super awkward." That's what made it feel authentic. Um, yeah. So you, I, so I I decided to um, you know assume the pose of of, a, of an average everyday American by not watching a single minute of either political convention, but you watch, you watched, I guess, like some of it. And, um, I watched nearly all of both of them. Okay. So what are your, what are your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> well, frankly, I, I was really impressed with, um, how the DNC just rolled with the conditions, uh, that were forced upon them. And, um, really, really used the like visual look of you know zoom calls essentially as the as the style of most of what they were presenting um and the reason i I liked that um you know part of what you're losing when you lose the convention is the feeling of liveness this feeling that something really real is happening right now um and and you know uh, I quote um, Jane Foyer, who's a TV scholar, um, who, who has has written uh, about you know TV and its ideology of the live. You know this this way that liveness gets connected to authenticity, to um, you know sort of direct exposure to the real, um, even though really the majority of TV has not been live since its earliest decades, mm-hmm. um, and, but it is often styled as if it's live. And 
what the convention always had going for it was that it was a live broadcast of a live event. And when you go, um, you know, when you go into this pandemic world and suddenly that live spectacle is no longer an option, um, I think you really do have to think about how to cultivate that same sense of um, authenticity and even sort of awkwardness in a in a convention. And so, you know, uh, for instance, I talk about the the roll call, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, just cutting from one thing to from one channel to the next, I think is a real improvement on the standard DNC roll call. And so, um, so normally the, the the like little like state committees or whatever, the delegates would be standing underneath a like rectangular yeah. sign that said that had the name of their state written on it. And yeah. they would say like, from the great state of New Jersey, home of, you know, Thomas Edison, we blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. And but instead they went for, you know, we're we're zooming <laughs> trademark all over the country, um, you know, and and the other the other um segment that I of the convention that I think is a really good example of this is the the keynote that was delivered in snippets by like 17 different people or however many it was um all kind of uh rising politicians state legislators uh like you know junior representatives etc mm-hmm. who have run for office since um Trump came to power and um I note that not only did they you know the DNC clearly has the technical and uh, aesthetic ability to create polished videos of those 17 people and splice them together. They chose not to, right? They chose to like have them literally holding a, an iPhone at arm's length, uh, filming themselves or on selfie sticks. And not only that, but they chose to cut away to secondary footage of them holding selfie sticks, right? And I, I really think that was a moment of really trying to make lemonades out of lemons here, like really take advantage of the kind of lo-fi distanced convention to express a certain kind of scrappy um, authenticity mm-hmm. in these people who, again, like the message both explicitly and implicitly is they're just doing what you could do, Right. Like they just said enough, like enough is enough. And they ran for office mm-hmm. and like the form, the form of the thing expresses that as well as the content. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, 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 so I, like I said, I didn't watch any of it, but I, maybe I should check out that one. It does sound interesting. The fact that they included this second shot of showing them. So they're filming themselves. So we all know yeah. what it looks like when someone is like speaking to their cell phone to record a video yeah. at this point. Um, but, but then like the additional pullback or the additional like breaking the fourth wall again, I mean, yeah. it's like it's like it's the final scene of the hills, I think, where they reveal that like it was all on a set, um, and oh, that's right. that's a theatrical coup that should be studied. Um, you know, <laughs> the show that was seemed like it was a reality show, but people knew it was kind of fake because it seemed like everything, you know, there, right. it was too smooth and and sometimes it seemed like the characters were kind of like reciting lines or something, but like real things did seem to be happening. And then the very yeah. final scene, like I don't know, the male and female leader like break up or something. And then the camera pulls back and it reveals that they're on like a set, like a Hollywood set. Um, yeah. Well, and this is the opposite, you know, cut away that's meant to prove not that it was all an illusion. Yeah. But... So they're actually like in their home office or living room or whatever. Um, yeah. 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 That's yeah. interesting. Um, I mean, the, the, the normal critique of the, of political conventions since 
I don't know how long since they stopped being the so you know it used to be the thing where they actually decided like yeah. argued over right. who would actually win and and it went you know it was a different ballots and something performative occasion yeah so things actually <laughs> happened past nominees nominees were actually put forward and yes. approved by you know acclaim yeah and there yeah. was the, there was a, the so called smoky back room and stuff but then I think the the parties changed the nomination procedure and I think since like seventy two or seventy six like. Right. It hasn't actually been that. It's always been more or less. I think maybe Reagan versus Ford was the last time it wasn't really known who was going to win. I could have that wrong, but but then it it's, became more just like this is a theatrical production essentially, and mm-hmm. and an infomercial is the word that you know it came to be used as like this is this is just a commercial, like a three or four night commercial. Everything mm-hmm. is stage managed. Like maybe right. something can happen. Like the thing where the balloons yeah. didn't fall correctly. For, in, mm-hmm. That was at John Kerry. I can't even remember, but there was one year where the balloons <laughs> didn't fall correctly. Um, yeah. So maybe something could happen, some screw up, or where you think it happened. But really, it was it was or, just stage. It like, was like puppet master, stage managed, whatever. I don't know. Like Ted Cruz could not endorse Trump. That's true. Right? So yeah, that like, happened. Bernie supporters could boo Hillary. Right. Like real stuff was happening, and right. the danger was that 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 the kind of authenticating power of the idea that things could actually go wrong, um, which is one way of thinking about liveness, like the authenticating power of the idea that things could go wrong, like that was gone and needed to be replaced with something else. And I think that DNC did a great job of replacing it with that aesthetic of sort of intimate Zoom liveness. Mm-hmm. And what, what about the RNC? I literally could not tell what was pre-recorded and what was live for most of the RNC. Um, you know, most of the speeches happened in this one auditorium with a thousand flags and neoclassical columns. Uh, I think it's the Mellon Auditorium uh, right on the National Mall in D.C. And, um, and it really seemed like what they were doing, it felt like the people who designed that were nostalgic for the old kind of convention and so they, uh, you know, set up a very standard, like, you know, red carpeted stage with flags behind it and, uh, and he- you know, held, held the speakers in tight shots that didn't show you whether or not there was an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, the effect of that was somewhat bizarre because, um, you know, people were giving speeches as if there were an audience there and then there was no audience response. Right. Right. So like, I think this is why like Kimberly Guilfoyle's speech felt so like cartoonish and bizarre. Right. So I, I, bizarre. Actually, I did, I did watch like 30 seconds of that. I, I guess I lied before. That was the only, like, the only thing I watched of the, of the convention. So, so that's like, that's, that's a speech that only makes sense if like a, you know, hot-blooded crowd is screaming along with every word, right? Yes. Um, and and even that would be terrifying to me. But um, but you know, so I I think in general they were, I just from a purely like aesthetic standpoint, I I didn't quite get what they were doing, um, and it set them up for, um, the kind of fiasco that that um that Kimberly Guilfoyle speech represented. Um, and then of course there's the, the, um, Thursday night where they, you know, had an actual crowd and it was happening live at the white house. Um, and you know, again, like 
an expression of the nostalgia for the convention they otherwise would have had, um, despite all public health recommendations and, and, you know, um, all sort of worries about like using the white house in particular as a backdrop for that. Um, you know, it just seems like this was driven by one person, probably Donald Trump's desire to have the kind of convention he was familiar with. Yeah. And, and there was, I mean, the, one of the problems with the Trump era is like, there's so many like outrages that it's hard to tell which outrages actually matter or like maybe you're yeah. forgetting some outrages from a couple of days ago that um, did actually yeah. did matter. And one of the things that I thought was disgusting was, um, you know, the, the fireworks over the national mall spelling out Trump 2020, like, you know, the, that's the national mall, uh, Mr. Mr. President. It's not, it's not the Donald J. Trump mall. Like, you know, your kind of mall yeah. would be like, it's not the mall of America. Yeah. yeah. It would be like a shitty like <laughs> mall in New Jersey for, for example, uh, not the national mall. Um, so I think, that's, I think, I think we've, we've, we've probably gone, <laughs> got on far enough, uh, on this topic. Although there's, there's certainly more you can discuss. I mean, the, the, the idea that, the, like, it was kind of an aesthetic failure, but whether, like, you know, Trump's whole thing is like the famous quote, he's like the, um, the poor man's idea of a rich man. You know, he, he's like, it's performed gaudiness, um, and kind of like the things that the, uh, cultural elite would consider in bad taste, like, you yeah. know, having your apartment covered in gold and stuff, like, uh, seems to appeal to a, a certain type of person. And whether, um, yeah, you know, he was, he, like, maybe he does know his base, uh, and mm -hmm. that's who, who he's catering to with this, like, kitschy bullshit. Um, but who knows? Um, that, so yeah. that could be a topic, the aesthetic, uh, aspect of it could be a topic for another day. Well, yeah. But I, I do want to make one point, which is that, like, when we are driven by an anxiety about charges of theatricality or like mere aesthetics, we become incapable of asking questions like, does that aesthetic have anything to do with the ideology that he's putting forward? Or like, does that aesthetic help amplify a message that he's trying to give? And I feel like, you know, the sort of TV pundit class retreats into aesthetics and questions of how effective uh, say a debate performance was mm -hmm. um, as a kind of pseudo objective way of talking about the one thing that they don't have to take a political or ideological stance on. So like, you know, did he choke on his words is not a political question. Right. Right. And, and what I, what I wish we would have is a world where people saw performance as something that could amplify or clash with ideas and policy proposals being put forward, like pu public images of America, et cetera. Yeah, th that makes, that makes sense to me. Um, and yeah, the, the, you know, the like classic CNN pundit, like someone like Crystal is a, is not going to, he sees it as not his job to render any sort of like moral or policy judgment on anything someone says, but like if he, <laughs> you know, if Trump is like, like, clearing his throat too much then like Salizzo would write like a listicle about the like 21 worst Trump throat clearings at the speech <laughs> or something like that because that's yeah. that's the the level at which it yeah it's, it seems nonpartisan or or something but it, it it's um you know that like that it's like choosing not to comment on on yeah. like the moral political aspects of it is um it, like is, is a choice um 
that, that the, a lot of mainstream media people make. Um, okay. So thank you, Chris, uh, for coming on culturally determined. Um, so, so you are on, you're on Twitter. Do you want to share your Twitter, uh, your Twitter handle so people can <laughs> follow your work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my Twitter handle is confessant C O N F E S S A N T, which, uh, you know, I'm stuck with forever, but was a reference to my first book, which is called the art of confession. Uh, the performance of self from Robert Lowell, reality TV. So, um, I, I think I, uh, that was a short-sighted choice, but uh, now now that is my <laughs> Twitter handle for life. So. You know, I think there is some way to change it, although maybe you need to be like a blue checkmark level person to change it. It is, it is, yeah, I mean, in, in some ways it's, um, you have to like kind of respect the people who are like sticking with their um, their Twitter handle from 2009 or something when it's become a little stranger and they're more prominent. Um, or, once this person is um, appears on this site, Phoebe Maltz-Bovey, the uh, uh, writer and uh uh, uh, Blowing Hits host hers is Tweeter Tweetertation because she, she was originally tweeting about her dissertation and, uh, and she's she's stuck with that so good for her and it, it it's a call, a callback to when Twitter was more of just like a weird goofy place and not like a hellscape yeah. so so is that but I I am RACW uh, on Twitter uh, and across all other forms of media or whatever uh, so yeah so thanks for coming on uh, Chris yeah. and thanks to our viewers and listeners and we'll see you again next time thanks this was fun.